0: God speaks to us in his word from Mark twelve thirteen through 27. And they sent, him, they sent to him some of the Pharisees and some of the Herodians to trap him in his talk. And they came and said to him, Teacher, we know that you are true and do not care about anyone's opinion. For you are not swayed by appearances, but truly teach the way of God. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Should we pay them, or should we not? But, knowing their hypocrisy, he said to them, Why put me to the test? Bring me a denarius, and let me look at it. And they brought one. And he said to them, Whose likeness and inscription is this? They said to him, Caesar's. Jesus said to to them, Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. And they marveled at him. And Sadducees came to him, who say that there is no resurrection. And they asked him a question, saying, Teacher, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies and leaves a wife but leaves no child, the man must take the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. There were seven brothers. The first took a wife, and when he died, left no offspring. And the second took her and died, leaving no offspring. And the third likewise. And the seven left No offspring. Last of all, the woman also died. In the resurrection, when they rise again, whose wife will she be? For the seven had her as a wife. Jesus said to them, Is this not the reason you are wrong, because you know neither the scriptures nor the power of God? For when they rise from the dead, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. And as for the dead being raised, have you not read in the book of Moses, in the passage about the bush, how God spoke to him, saying, I am the God of Abraham, and the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. He is not God of the dead, but of the living. You are quite wrong. This is the word of the Lord.
1: Just a simple passage for you guys this morning to preach on. Nothing complex or weird in it at all. Um, Hey, listen, before we jump into this, and we do have a lot to cover, I'm gonna do my very best uh, to make sure we get it all today. I missed you guys last week. Um, One of my best friends, Pastor Daryl Fields, was here to preach, so grateful for that dude, man. Um, If you know Daryl at all, uh, man, he's he's just one of the best pastors I know. And uh, one of my best buddies, I'm hanging out with him tonight. Um, Man, I would love it if if you guys know Daryl. He's a pastor over at Union Missionary Baptist Church. Um, Just a blessing to have him. I saw some video and I was like, my goodness, I called Daryl and said, can we borrow your church members every 11 o'clock service? Uh, Just so full of life. So if you know him or you know people that know him or you you know part of that church, I would love to invite you just to say thank you to him. Maybe you have his number, I don't know, but he really blessed us, man, and uh, really grateful for that dude. All right, before we jump into the scripture today, And we do have a lot to cover. There's a lot to go over. I want to tell you something. I want to reiterate something that that, um, Zach Merrill talked with you about last week, if you weren't here, but I just want to reiterate it. As I read Philippians 3, uh, just a New Testament book, Philippians 3 is this moment where Paul says something really profound. Now, the Apostle Paul um, wrote half of the New Testament, more than half. Um, inspired by God, the Holy Spirit, he wrote it. This is a pretty good dude, pretty mature, enough to write the Bible. God used him. The apostle Paul says something that I feel like we miss a lot, and which is interesting. He says this, I have not obtained maturity. Paul says it, I have not obtained it, but I press on towards maturity in Jesus Christ. In Philippians 3, The Apostle Paul says something that we are too arrogant to say a lot. He says, I don't have it yet. I am immature myself. As he's writing this in the Bible, I am immature, therefore I press on. Sometimes I feel like we think that we have obtained it. Members in the room, listen to me. Sometimes I feel like you and I both, we think I got it, I understand it, I don't need anybody telling me what to do with my life. I don't need any help at all. I got it. And you go to Philippians 3, and you see the humility that comes up against our arrogance to think that we have obtained it. Because of that, I want to invite you, man, and it's more than an invitation. I want to ask you to do it as members of the church. If you're a member in this room today, we are going to, with intensity, um, but simply, We're going to spend this spring trying to obtain more of it, trying to know Jesus more. Our leadership development course is what we're going to invite every single covenant member in this church in to learn more about theology, more about the heart of God, more about each other, to learn more about the church. We're not going to ask a ton of your calendar. We're basically going to do four or five, um, we're going to do four big gatherings uh, March through May, and then we're going to have cohorts and some readings and a little bit of material for you guys to go through. But I wanna invite you, if you're a Covenant member, let's get serious about this, okay? So applications are gonna come open very quickly. Um, February 20th is when we're gonna ask for your application deadline. Be thinking right now, start organizing your life to try and obtain it more. Start organizing your life to come and be a part of this. Man, we really do feel like this is a game changer for our church, so that's leadership development course. You'll be hearing a lot about that uh, in the coming weeks. Man, start praying about it, start organizing your life. Let's get together, man. Let's all run the race together. All right, the book of Mark. You might already have your Bible open up to Mark. Um, if you don't have a Bible, we have a Bible for you. We'd love to give you today. We'll have uh, words on the screen as well. I wanna start with a scenario that this is a little bit of a trigger warning. Uh, It is for me, at least. Have you ever argued with someone? Have you ever talked with someone that turned into an argument because their only aim is to win the conversation? Therefore, they're just simply thinking about the next thing that they're gonna say. They're not even actually hearing you. You ever been in that situation before where you're listening, you're talking to someone and you, because you are so incredibly 100% pure of heart all the time, you, of course, just wanna get to the truth. You don't care if you're right or wrong. I just want the truth. And this other person, though, that joker, (laughs) they just are trying to win the argument. They're just literally not even listening to you. They're just thinking about their rebuttal You ever had a conversation with somebody like that? Have you ever been the person on the other side? (laughs) Where you just are like, you cannot, somebody's screaming at you, listen to what I'm saying. Stop trying to win the argument. We have an addiction to being right. What's interesting is sometimes you can try so hard to be right that you actually miss the relationship and you actually miss the person that you're talking with. And guess what? You can wanna be right so much and think that you're right so much that you actually end up being dead wrong because you miss the truth. Jesus is walking through this book of Mark. Jesus consistently has people come up to him trying to, the Bible says, trap him. Really what that word means is to hunt. They're hunting Jesus for the sole purpose, not to learn, they're not teachable. Their sole purpose is to prove to him that they are right about God and about him and about the way that life should be lived. In this passage today, Jesus now, we've made this major turn in the book of Mark. If you're new with us, we've been studying this book Mark, and it's been these two questions that we've been asking, um, who is Jesus? Like literally 16 chapters in Mark, eight chapters are asking the question, who is Jesus? And right in the middle of the book, Jesus asks his disciples, who do people say that I am? Peter confesses, you are the Christ. You are the son of God. And in that moment, it whole, the whole thing changes. Then we get to another question, not so much who is Jesus, which I think we would agree in this room today, in, Midwestern Bible Belt America, no one would dare say Jesus is not Lord. We love that statement. Jesus is Lord. We've concluded, we've come to an answer. Who is Jesus? He is Lord. Now the most important question is this. What are you gonna do with it? What do you do with it from this moment on? He is Lord. Now what? He's the king, no doubt. He's not the king that we expected him to be. It's not just true in this story, it's true for you right now. And when we come to Jesus with our platitudes, when we come to him with our agenda, with our wanting to be right, what we end up doing is making a God in our image. And that's what the Pharisees, Herodians, and Sadducees are trying to do today. Form Jesus to fit their mold. Today we're gonna walk through two confrontations And we're gonna see what Jesus has for us. Two confrontations that Jesus handles way better than any of us would. The first is this, everyone's favorite topic in the world. The first confrontation is about politics. Let me read the story for you. They sent, pay careful attention to how this goes down. Mark 12. They sent to him some of the Pharisees and some of the Herodians to trap him in his talk in case you were wondering, if they had any other good, pure motives, they literally sent them to trap Jesus in his talk. And they came and said to him, teacher, we know that you are true and do not care about anyone's opinion. For you are not swayed by appearances, but truly teach the way of God. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Should we pay them or should we not? There's no lead up. There's no, hey, how are you? How are you doing? Do you need anything? Teacher, all just false flattery from the start. We know that you are true. We know that you don't care about man's opinion. Should we pay taxes to Caesar? <laughs> First off, man, the, social, the lack of social tact here is pretty unbelievable. They gathered a group of people, the Pharisees and Herodians. They found kind of their special forces, you know, trapping, hunting, conversational groups said, you guys get together, figure out what you're gonna ask him because we want to trap him, that's the sole purpose. We don't actually care what he has to say about whether or not we should pay taxes. We don't really care what Jesus has to say about our life. We don't care really at all what his heart is for us or that he's preaching about the kingdom of God. All we care about is that he should agree with how we think. That's what they're saying. Some of us in the room today feel that. Some of you feel that about me. Some people go to church, and well, a lot of people, and we judge church based on whether or not they said enough things for us to agree with them. And so instead of the posture of receiving and the posture of which we all should be is to go, man, I don't have it figured out, I need help. Instead of that humble posture, what we do is we just... Judge based on, did they say what I think they should have said? That's what's happening here. The Pharisees and the Herodians trying to trap Jesus. These are two really interesting groups of people. The Pharisees, which you know, you've heard a thousand times about them by now. The Pharisees were hyper, um, had hyper allegiance to Israel. But more than that, they had allegiance to Yahweh. God, Yahweh, Yahweh was the God of the nation of Israel. And for them, they loved the law, they loved Israel, they were very conservative in their beliefs, they hated Rome, they hated any other nation that wasn't Israel. They were right-wing, conservative, nationalist. That's what the Pharisees were. Right-wing, conservative, nationalists, to Israel. On the other hand is the Herodians. I don't, I tried to figure out why they're named after Herod, I don't know. (laughs) I couldn't read anything that told me why. Maybe some of y'all know, who knows, tell me after the sermon. Herodians, but here's what we do know about them. They were hyper committed to Rome. It really benefited them to be committed to Rome. They were progressive in their beliefs, way different than the Pharisees. These guys were left-wing nationalists, progressive. Both right-wing nationalists and left-wing nationalists to two different nations with separate ideals. Guess what? They hated each other. The Pharisees and Herodians hated each other. But now they have a common enemy like only Jesus can do. The two groups that hate each other have a common enemy and they hated him so much, he was such a threat to their ideals that they got together and said, let us trap him. He's got to go, man. He's got to go. He's gonna mess up everything. He's gonna mess up our right-wing conservative political and national views, religious views, and he's gonna mess up our left-wing progressive views. Sounds about like Jesus. You ever feel like you don't fit in the climate that we're in, Christian in the room? You ever feel like you just can't find the footing that you need to follow Jesus and say yes to candidates or presidents or, you ever feel that way? We kinda don't belong. Jesus' kingdom is another kingdom. It's not like the one that we're in now. It's an eternal kingdom, has different principles and a different ruler. We submit to him. First and foremost, Pharisees and Herodians needed him to get out of there. He threatened their way of life. He's preaching the kingdom of God to the poor. Are you kidding me? This dude comes in the name of Jesus. He comes in the name of God and calms the sea and raises people from the dead and casts out demons. And then he preaches with authority. And guess what, he's doing all of that. You gotta be kidding me, this guy, this clown, Jesus is coming, all of that happens in his name and then he's telling everybody, gospel to the poor, love your neighbor as yourself. He's messing up everything, he has got to go. He's gotta go. He is a threat to our way of life. Let's trap him come up with something that there's no way he can get out of. Ask him about taxes, but we'll see what he says. If he says no, you should not pay taxes to Caesar, well guess what, Pharisees win, Herodians hate him, but that's proof enough, Herodians are out to get him. If he says yes, you should pay taxes to Caesar, he's awesome, (laughs) guess what, Pharisees hate him, point proven. He's not the Messiah, right wing and left. Jesus is a threat and here's what happens. Knowing their hypocrisy, he said to them, why put me to the test? Bring me a denarius and let me look at it. And they brought him one and he said to them, whose likeness and inscription is this? And they said to him, Caesar, I love this, God himself who spoke light and life into existence, formed man from the dust, has never needed anything or anyone or any money at all. Who resisted Satan in the wilderness when he offered him all the money in the world. Jesus himself doesn't even have need for one day's wages. He has to ask somebody for a coin. This coin, this denarius was a day's wage. The tax that they're talking about was more of a gift. Rome was very progressive. I mean, Rome changed a lot of our civilization today. What they did was kinda knocked it out of the park with roadways and water systems and all kinds of stuff. So they provided a lot. They provide a lot of goods, a lot of services to the people. And what they asked was a thing called a poll tax. A poll tax was, Give back for the goods and the services that you receive. Jesus is addressing their poll tax. They wanna know, should we give back to Rome? So he asked for a coin. Let me, it's typical. None of us would have done this, by the way. Jesus says, somebody give me a coin, which is authority anyway, that he could just ask for somebody's day's wages and they give it to him. On one side of the coin, you had a picture of Caesar. And here's what it read Tiberius Caesar, son of the divine, Augustus, Augustus, son of God. On the other side of the coin, there was another inscription. It read this Chief priest. A coin is a day's wage. Caesar on one side, son of God on the back, chief priest. The irony of the real son of God and the chief priests asking for this coin. Jesus takes the coin that says son of God and chief Priest, and then he says this, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. And they marveled at him. <laughs> he didn't answer anybody. He did what he does. He spoke the kingdom of God which is always upside down. The first will be last and the last will be first. They marveled at him, they were stuck. Jesus tells them, no, not taxes, pay what you owe to the person that you owe it to, including God. What is God after? What does he want? We know a few things, one, we are sinful. There has to be a penalty for that. There has to be payment for that. We know that that's true. And to follow him, we know this too. Any man who wants to come after me must deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. Render to Caesar what's Caesar's, and to God what's God's. It's the truest theme in the Gospels. And it's the truest theme today for them God is not after your day's wage. God is not after your political claims. He does not want your ideals and agenda. What he wants, quite simply, is all of that and more. He wants the whole person of you. That's what he wants. He wants your allegiances. He wants your idolatry. He wants all of your pledges. He wants your dreams, he wants your life, he wants your family, your kids, your husband, your wife, your mortgage, your retirement plan. He wants every bit of that. How do you give all of that to him? Can you simply write a check? No. How does he get anything? What does he constantly ask us for? That's why their material stuff, their ideals, their agendas, all of the things that they think about all the things that they think that they deserve. That's why it doesn't work. That's why he turned away the rich young ruler. You remember that story about this man who was rich and he said, what must I do, Jesus? He was rich and young and a ruler. Those are three things that were very rare. He was very rich, had a lot of authority, very young. He comes to Jesus, what must I do to be saved? And Jesus tells, he he says, well, have you kept the commandments? No, and he hadn't. He said, yes, I've kept them all since I was young. Well, Jesus is the only one who ever did that. And then Jesus tells him what? Go then, sell everything that you own and give it to the poor, everything. And the man walks away frustrated. What's the point? Did Jesus really want him to go and sell everything that he owned? Well, Maybe, maybe that was what was right for him. The point is this, it's the point in all the gospels, it's the point every time we come face to face with Jesus, it's what the Pharisees and Herodians and soon to be Sadducees are gonna be faced with, is God is after your whole self, your whole heart. That's what he wants. And when our heart and our loves are disordered, then everything else falls out of place as well. We care about stupid things like taxes. We care about our political ideals above anything else. That's what we care about. And we take offense to God when he offends us with the kingdom of God. He wants your heart and he wants every bit of it. Where is your heart? That's the question. Who has it? Who has your heart? Psalm 51, 16, I love this. For you will not delight in sacrifice or I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. This is to God. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. Does your heart belong to your political convictions? Does your heart belong to your addiction to being right? Or does it belong to God? It's interesting to note that in this psalm, it's literally impossible to have a broken spirit and a humble heart if your aim is to be right. It's impossible. It's also impossible to be right before God if your aim is to be right. Do you understand what I'm saying? A broken spirit and a contrite heart, that's the sacrifice. How do we do that, man? We need God the Holy Spirit, we need him. We need humility. We need him to continually surrender, even when we don't feel like it, continually surrender our life, continually surrender our whatever, man, our paycheck and our whatever it is, all the things that would grip us, that we put our death grip on, continually surrender those things. The second question, the second confrontation was this. It was about religion. Now we have this other group. We've met the Pharisees and Herodians. They wanted to know about politics, about taxes. God says, ultimately, this is about your heart. Render to God what is God's. And now it's religion. What a weird two stories. They're just firing off at Jesus, man. And Sadducees came to him who say that there is no resurrection. And they asked him a question saying, Teacher, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies and leaves a wife, but leaves no child, the man must take the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. There were seven brothers. The first took a wife, and when he died, left no offspring. And the second took her and died, leaving no offspring. And the third likewise, and the seven left no offspring. Last of all, the woman also died. In the resurrection, just please notice, take note of the sarcasm and just the arrogance that's dripping off of this line towards Jesus. In the resurrection, when they rise again, whose wife will she be? For the seven had her as a wife. They come with a ridiculous. First off, if I, I feel like if I'm Jesus, I'm like, what is going on with this woman? She had seven different husbands. They all died. What, what's happening? It's a little bit fishy. We need to call Dateline or something, man. Get this thing figured out. CSI. When they rise again, whose wife will she be? Sadducees were an interesting group of people. They were very wealthy. Um, They were religiously conservative and progressive at the same time. Let me explain what I mean by that. They didn't, they were progressive because, and by progressive I mean just not orthodox. They didn't believe in life after death at all. As a matter of fact, no um, sort of supernatural. They They were very kind of Gnostic in their beliefs. No resurrection, nothing supernatural. They didn't accept anything in the Old Testament that wasn't the first five books, the Torah. They were strict on justice and morality, though, which is why they were also conservative. So strict on justice and morality, but didn't believe in life after death. They came with condescension. This crazy story about this woman who married seven brothers, you know, fourth or fifth one down the line you'd think you would just be running away not marrying that lady jesus responds uh, with this he says in verse 24 jesus said to them is this not the reason you are wrong i love that because you know neither the scriptures nor the power of god imagine that the son of the most high god saying is this not the reason you are wrong because you know neither the scripture nor the power of god jesus right off the top rope and then verse 25 For when they rise from the dead, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. And as for the dead being raised, have you not read in the book of Moses in the passage about the bush, how God spoke to him saying, I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. You are quite wrong. Heaven, no marriage, only Jesus, us with him forever. And for the first time in your life, Complete satisfaction. Not needing anything if you belong to Jesus. That's what new heavens and new earth is, is God encompassing, embodying, and satisfying all of us in every way. He says, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. It's so interesting, here we have people who uh, don't believe in the resurrection, they believe in just annihilation. Death is death, there ain't nothing happening. And they come, they believe the first five books to the Old Testament only, the story of Moses. God comes to him in the burning bush says, I am that I am, take off your sandals. You're on holy ground. I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And Jesus says, you don't believe in the resurrection. You believe in the first five books in the story of Moses. God did not say I was the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. This is Jesus saying, let me correct you. I was there. I was there. I met with Moses. I led Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. I am that I am. This is Jesus saying, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. They didn't just die. They are with me now power, authority of God on earth in Jesus. He is the living God and the God of the living. Today you might feel like you don't know what it means to live. You don't know what's life. You may be thinking about the end of time, the end of your life, what happens after this. You may be thinking about what came before. You might be one of those people that God has graciously opened your heart to ask the question, why are we here? And that question without an answer is just death. Jesus is life. He's life. He's the answer to every single thing. He's the God of the living. Maybe you feel dead today, spiritually dead. Maybe you've forgotten where life comes from. Maybe you never knew it. I don't know. Lift up your head. Lift up your head. He said, I, Jesus said, I am the resurrection and the life. I'm both. These people are trying to fit Jesus, God, into their own compartments and prove their ideals as right, and God doesn't fit anywhere. He is that he is. Nobody made God. He is everlasting upon everlasting. He starts and he finishes. God himself comes before and after. And as a matter of fact, Jesus is the starter and the finisher, the author and perfecter of our faith in him. You cannot believe in God without God putting faith in you. For us today, we need the reminder that Romans 11 gives us this. Oh, the depth and the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments. How inscrutable his ways for who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid. For from him and through him and to him are all things To him be glory forever. Amen. The heartbeat of today's confrontation is this. What happens to us when all we care about is being right and not being right before God, get the distinction, when all we care about is just being right but not right before God, we actually end up being wrong and missing God at the same time. Being right before God requires humble submission of our heart, our ideals, our motives, our train of thought, the way that we think, the way that we vote, the way that we don't vote, the way that we live, what we give to, how we treat people, what we say yes to, all of the fruit of the spirit, all of that, that surrender fully to God. It's all that old 90s bracelet. I think about it a lot, but man, I wish it would have gotten into our heart more. It got so cheesy, just another like kind of Christian cultural thing, the WWJD bracelets, maybe some of you are old enough to remember those. Boy, those were everywhere. I don't know who made some money off those, but they made some money. WWJD, what would Jesus do? I want it to be in our heart though. That's the question. God, what do you want from my life? How do you want me to respond to this? How do you want me to live? Answer the question of What happens when we're right but don't have God is we end up being wrong and miss God. And the answer to all of these questions is the same. You need Jesus and so do I, we need him. We need his heart, we need his perfect life, we need his sacrifice. Jesus is now, he says, I've set my face like flint towards the cross, he, he's now on his way to the cross, nothing is gonna stop him. That's the whole point of his living. What's going to happen now is there will be a true chief priest, a true high priest, a true son of God who doesn't demand a tax from his people but instead pays the tax in full. That's a king. That's a ruler. He doesn't make any demands on us at all. Because you know why he created us? He knows us, he knows us in our inmost being. He knows everything about us, he knows. There's no way on your best day, in your best behavior, that you could ever pay the debt of sin that you owe. And Jesus does it like a high priest should. He does it for us. Chief priest, the cornerstone. Jesus knew that Caesar in Rome would pass away. It's not an issue for him. Give me the coin, give to Caesar what's Caesar's. This is gonna be fleeting. What matters most is to render to God what is God's. He diverts our attention to the thing that matters most and has eternal implications, and that's himself. And I wanna invite you to divert your attention today back to him. This, I love this old hymn, man. I used to sing it a lot. Turn your eyes upon Jesus, look full in his wonderful face and the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. That's our invitation today, man. I don't know what you're facing. I don't even know if it's heavy or not. I don't know what's happening in your heart right now. I wanna know, I would love to know. I don't, but my invitation to you would be this. Lift up your eyes, like the psalmist says, I lift my eyes to the hills. Where does my help come from? My help comes from God, the maker of heaven and earth. You've forgotten how powerful he is. You've forgotten how tender he is. He is a sufficient high priest because he became us. We're gonna take the table together, and we're gonna take communion. We do this every week. We take communion every week in this church. Because the Bible tells us to do it often. And when we do it, remember him. And you need the reminder, and so do I, who we are. For the Christian in the room, you're part of a family. And it doesn't matter today what you feel like or how many times you messed up or whatever. What matters is, is that you're in covenant relationship with the other Christians in the room and the Christians around the world, and you're in covenant relationship with God. And here's the most important thing. God holds the keys to the covenant. So come with all of your messed upness. Come with all of your craziness. Come with all of your brokenness, all whatever it is, all of your shame. It's not gonna change God. He loves you. He's with you. He's steady. He's solid. He doesn't change. So every broken, messed up, sinful Christian in the room, those of you who have put your trust in Jesus, you have an invitation today to come and remember Jesus.